number three, and uh, we're going to read here uh, verses uh, 14 through uh, 17. And um, if you're just joining us, one of the things we've been kind of going through here in Ephesians is uh, who we are in Christ and uh, what we find as what God says about who we are, our identity that's found in him. And it's important to understand that because I think if, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you know the Lord, um, there are many things that people say that who we are or what the world may try to define us who we are, but that contradicts many times of what God's word says who we are. And it's important to understand our identity in Christ because I believe when we understand our identity in him, then we are able to be transformed into the life which God wants us to live. And as we've been studying through here, uh, Ephesians 2 and 3, we've been looking at the, the mystery of the church and what the purpose of the church is. And I think one thing that we should never over, uh, over underestimate is the fact that when we see God's purpose of the church. That, that, was, that was Paul's whole idea there in Ephesians 2 and 3 is he's trying to get the people there that lived in Ephesus at the church there, trying to get them to understand when you understand the purpose of the church, you will then in turn learn about who you are and how that can transform your life living in the spirit as what God has to say. And so it's important to understand that. So let's look here, Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, we're going to begin reading here verse number 14. And Paul is going to pray now for these believers in Christ. And the importance it is for them to understand who they are in Christ. And look at verse number 14. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's entire prayer that he has for these uh, believers here that are at Ephesus. Now, we're going to be able to deal entirely with this prayer. We're probably going to break this up in uh, two or three parts. And so really, I just want to hone in on verses 14 through 17. Um, and I think by understanding this, it will help us understand who we are in Christ. There's one thing that we can see about this prayer, and that's the fact that this prayer is a prayer for spiritual maturity, if there is one thing that is needed as believers in Christ, we need to be spiritually mature. I believe many times within the church, as body of believers, we are spiritually immature. We're not grown up in Christ. 
And so Paul is praying for their spiritual maturity. If you remember, Paul actually started this prayer back in Ephesians 3. Remember he says, for this reason, and he kind of got interrupted. He stopped praying and he started talking about his trials and his difficulties as he was a prisoner of the Lord. He's writing from prison. And Paul showed us how we can live a, 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 a Christian life even though in the midst of trials and difficulties. And Paul now picks up that prayer again and he says, for this reason, he's going to be praying. Now, the title of this message here is Christ Dwelling. We are Christ dwelling. Christ lives and dwells within us. What exactly does that mean? What does that mean that Christ dwells within us? Does Christ live within our hearts? It might surprise you, but nowhere in scripture are we to pray and invite Jesus into our hearts. The only thing that we are commanded to do is to repent and believe the gospel. That's what scripture teaches But here we find in this text, though, that it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so we are supposed to believe the gospel, and in believing the gospel, Christ does come in and dwell within us. But what is the gospel? The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Christ was put on a cross and he was crucified for our sins. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And when Christ became sin, he paid the penalty for our sins and he died. And he was buried, the Bible teaches us. And the third day he rose again. And it's believing that gospel, repenting of our sins and believing that gospel that Christ comes to dwell within us. So this text here about Christ dwelling in our hearts, this is not a a thing, a verse to teach people to say you must uh, ask Jesus into your hearts. But rather this is talking to believers who already know the Lord. And he's saying that Christ should be dwelling in your hearts through faith. Remember in chapter number two, what we used to be? He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then I love verse number four, but God who is rich in mercy, what did he do? Boy, he gave us Christ and Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And so we find here within this prayer here that Paul is praying, there's basically two requests. And here they are, verses 16 and 17, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. And then in verse number 18, you may have strength to comprehend With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So this is a prayer for their spiritual maturity, that they would be growing up in Christ. 
And so the key for us as believers, if we are to know who we are in Christ, we need to know that Christ dwells within us and that we are to be spiritually mature believers in the Lord. What is the gauge of how we can gauge whether a person is spiritually mature? Would it be church attendance? Is that, is that how we gauge if somebody's spiritually mature? What is the gauge? How do we know if we are spiritually mature in the Lord? Paul gives us some examples here. So there are three things necessary in order for us to fulfill this prayer, I believe, and to actually live it out and to be spiritually mature in the Lord. Here they are. Number one, do I pray? Do I pray? Are you a praying Christian? You say, what does that have to do with Christ dwelling within my heart? Well, remember, this prayer is a prayer for spiritual maturity. And so spiritual maturity always begins with prayer. The mature Christian recognizes that God is in control of everything, and he prays to the Lord, he prays to the Father, and he tries to bring everything in alignment with who God is. All of his circumstances, all of, his, all of the things that are going on. Think of Paul, where is he? He's in prison. And what is he doing? He's praying. Does he pray for deliverance? No. In fact, one of the things that Paul prays for is he prays for boldness to actually continue to proclaim Christ. And so a praying Christian, one of the marks of spiritual maturity is a Christian who prays. One who aligns their circumstances with God's purpose. So do you pray? Paul gives us this example here of praying for these Ephesian believers. And you know, we too can pray this prayer. I think we should pray this prayer. I think these are words that we should continue to bring back up to the Father and actually pray for these requests that Paul's even making mention of here. So do you pray? When do you pray? What do you pray for? I would have to say that most of our prayers are not things of, Lord, I want to be strengthened in the inner man so that I might know you in a greater way. But I would say most of our prayers somewhat focus around me, about what I want, what I can do. And they're not focused on the Father. They're not focused in on God's purpose for my life. Look at this prayer here. I want to break this up. Look at verse number 14. He says, for this reason. For this reason. Sound familiar? Remember Ephesians 3, 1? For this reason. This is looking back at all of chapter 1 and chapter number 2 about Paul as he's given us these things about who we are in Christ that we have of all these spiritual blessings in him. And he says, because of all of this, because of everything that we have in Christ, I'm going to pray. But especially look at verses, uh, chapter number 2, verses 19 through 22. Look what he says, for this reason, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. 
So Paul is saying, because God has saved you by his sovereign grace and brought you as Jews and Gentiles together, and you are now one new man, the church, and because you are being built together as a dwelling place of God in the spirit, therefore I pray, Paul says. And what he prays is that God would make real in their experience what is true of them already positionally in Christ. And I believe that's where our prayer should be focused in on is what we know to be true, what God says about us, that is what we pray so that it makes it real in our lives. One of the things that I've kind of been saying as we've been going through all of this in Ephesians, do you believe this? Do you believe the very words of scripture, what God says to be true about you? Do you believe it? Because once we get a hold of that, once we understand what God says about us that is true and we actually live that out, it transforms our lives. And so here he's praying and he's praying for for them to be mature in Christ. And this is what gives us our confidence. This is what gives us our assurance. This is what gives us our boldness to come before the Lord is to understand who we are before the Lord. Look at this next thing he says, for this reason, what? I pray. He doesn't say that. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. You see, this revealed a major part of Paul's spiritual maturity. He said he was bowing his knees before the Father. Now, Paul is not saying this is how you pray. Because there are many people in the Bible that we find that are praying standing, sitting, kneeling, laying prostrate. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, I have a reverential attitude towards the Father. I'm bowing my knees before the Father. And Paul says, this is my attitude towards him. He is reverent towards the Father. Can I say that many times our prayers are not reverential prayers? but they are microwave prayers. You know what a microwave prayer is? Pop it in for 10 seconds, boom, it's done. Paul says, my prayer is a reverential prayer. I bow my knees before the Father. Have you ever had a microwave go bad on you? Can't cook the food, can you? Our microwave just went out the other night. We were cooking baked potatoes in it. Baked potatoes weren't getting done, and then all of a sudden, boom, (laughs) quit working. Paul says, my prayer is reverential. He's reverent towards him. Look at this next thing here. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And then what does he say? From whom every family, every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul here is making reference to what we already learned about who we are. Who are we, church? We are family. We are members of the household of faith. It's not, well, hey, I have my life, you have your life, and this is where we come, and this is where our life just kind of seems to intersect on a Sunday morning. We are family. We are members of the household of faith together. We are no longer Jew or Gentile. And one thing that is helpful in prayer is pray to the Lord what you already know to be true 
about yourself, about what God says who you are. Example, for example, for this, the spiritual blessings that we already have in Christ. What do you have in Christ? Who are you in Christ? We can pray those things back to the Lord. And this further reinforces in our mind, in our hearts, what God says to be true about who we are. And this helps us mature as believers in Christ. And so when we pray, we should recognize that when we belong to this great family, the saints in heaven and in earth, look at that, think about that. We have family in heaven and we have family here on earth. We have family members that you have never even met before. Long, distant relatives that you've never even met. You ever go to a family reunion and meet people you don't even know? On my side of the family, the, the bird side of the family, my grandfather was the uh, baby of 16 children. He just passed away a couple years ago. He was the last one. And I remember growing up as a kid, we used to go to these family reunions. And it was the Bird family reunion. You know the people that had the name Bird there? Me, my brother, my dad, my sister, and my grandpa and grandma. Everybody else was somebody else. And I didn't even know who these people were. But they were, somehow we were all related. We have family in heaven and on earth. And Paul is saying, listen... The reason why I'm praying this, the reason for spiritual maturity is to understand that we are family together. How should that change our prayer life as believers, even in how we interact with other people? When your child is sick, how do you pray? When your mom is sick, how do you pray? Your dad is sick, how do you pray? But when somebody in, within the church has a need, how different do we pray then? You see, we are family. And this should affect our spiritual maturity. Listen to this next thing he says. So he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now I love this. That according to the riches of his glory, that according to the riches of his glory. It's interesting as we look at this prayer here, Paul prays that God would do all of this, that we would be spiritually mature according to the riches of his glory. What does that mean? What does according to the riches of his glory mean? You see, God's glory is the sum of all of his attributes of who he is of everything that makes him glorious. For example, that he's infinite, that he never changes, that he's self-sufficient, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he is everywhere, that he is wise and faithful, that he's good and he's just and he's merciful, he's gracious, he's loving, he's holy, he's glorious, he's jealous, he's wrathful, and he's righteous, etc., etc. Everything of who God is the sum of everything of who God is, Paul says, according to the riches of his glory. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17 describes him as the glorious father. 
Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And we see this phrase of, of according to his glorious riches. So what does that mean? You see, Paul is not asking God to give out of the riches, but according to his riches. Megan, can I, can I borrow you just for a sec real quick? When I was a youth pastor for... Uh, nine years, one of the things that I did is I built a giant Monopoly board game that could be set up in a gymnasium. We had giant Monopoly uh, pieces, I mean, printed out big money. Uh, kids would bring a, like giant stuffed animal or some kid brought a ladder one time and all kinds of stuff. And that's what they'd move around the Monopoly board. So I had all this Monopoly money. You can't spend this for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but it had all this money, Okay. Now, Megan, how much, how much do you want? I don't say. I mean, look, look, at every, look at all this that I got. How much of this do you want? Look, I got, I mean, I got ones, I got fives, I got tens, whole stack of 20s, 50s, 100s, and even 500. How much do you want? About a five. A five, that's it? Re okay. Now, Here's the example. If, if this was all this money, multi-millionaire, okay, and Megan asked and said, I want a five, I would be giving out of my riches, okay? Is that all you want? Yes. Okay. But the word of God here says that he gives according to his riches. What's the difference? The difference is not just giving a five because that's just giving out of your riches. The difference is giving according to would be the fact if Megan asked for a five, I would say, here you go. <laughs> There's a difference there because I'm giving according to my riches. How would you, asking for a five, would like to get all this? Exactly, exactly. Thank you for pointing that out. Because we don't ask for it, what is that? That's grace. And God gives us according to his riches. Grace. Remember back in Ephesians 1, lavished on the grace? It's been lavishly poured out upon us. And God is saying here, Paul is praying and he's saying, I am praying that God would grant you according to his riches your spiritual maturity. Thank you, Megan. You can, ha you can have that. There you go. <laughs> so he is giving this. He's abundantly giving it to us according to his riches. Now look at this next word. This is so important. So for our spiritual maturity, am I praying that according to the riches of his glory, he may what? Grant. 
Boy, that is such a powerful word, grant. That is so powerful and it's so significant when we're talking about God's riches of his glory because it simply means to give freely. He freely gives it. He freely gives it. That's why I say, are you a praying Christian? For spiritual maturity, do you pray? Do you go to the Father and you pray earnestly? Father, I need to be strengthened. I need your strength in the inner man. And God says, I'm willing to give this out of the riches, according, a giving to, to according to the riches of my glory, freely he's willing to do that. And it recognizes that we should never ask God for anything that is based on any merit of our own. Rather, we only receive from him according to his grace. You see, I don't come to God in prayer and saying, God, you know, I was a very good Christian this week. I went to church. I even memorized a verse. I get, put some money in the, in the offering. Father, you know I need this need in my life. That is the prosperity gospel. God gives freely. He does not ask for us to give him anything. It's not based upon our own merit. It's based completely upon who he is, the sum of all of God, of who he is, of his glory, that he gives according to the riches of his grace, of his glory. And it's here in Ephesians 3.16, Paul wants God to grant us according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Do you pray this prayer for yourself? Do you pray that? Do you pray this for other believers? You see, to understand that Christ dwells in our hearts and to grow in spiritual maturity, it begins with prayer. Do you pray? Are you praying? Am I praying? Are we a praying Christian? Am I a praying Christian? Here's the second thing that I want you to see about this, about spiritual maturity. Next thing is, do I walk in the spirit? So number one, do I pray? Secondly, do I walk in the spirit? Notice here in this prayer as Paul is praying that our path to maturity in Christ's dwelling is that we are strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. Listen to what he says. That according, verse number 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. There is so much here to dwell on and to meditate on. And I encourage you to think about this often. Am I being strengthened in my inner man? Am I dwelling with Christ you see, spiritual maturity is not a one-time event. It's ongoing. It's our sanctification process. It's our growth in Christ. It's us recognizing that I need spiritual maturity in my life as a believer. And so this sanctification process is becoming more and more and more like Jesus. That's why we need the spiritual maturity. That's why we need the spiritual maturity of Christ in our life. And this is a process and it's a way that we experience God's power to change our hearts as we walk in the spirit day by day. 
You know, every believer needs this power. Every believer. Every believer needs spiritual maturity. They need this growth and this sanctification process that is taking place by walking in the Spirit. Let's refresh our memories here about the power of God because it's the power of God that changes us. Look at uh, verses, chapter one, verses 19 through 20. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Remember chapter two, verse one, you were dead Chapter two, verse number two, you once walked, you once lived, but God has made us alive. That's power. And Paul wants us to continue in that power. Not, hey, well, I came to Christ, I'm a believer now, and now I can just put it in in, in neutral and just coast. No, that is not the spiritual life. That is not spiritual maturity. The spiritual life is always advancing, always moving forward, always coming to God and saying, God, what needs to be changed in me? And where God reveals to us through his word and he changes us, that's power. Why do we need this power for spiritual maturity? Because all of us face problems that are beyond our power to figure out or to fix. All of us do. And so we need power for spiritual maturity in our life to change. Just think about your life. How do you go through it all? How do you handle it? How do you figure it out? When things aren't going the way that you thought they were gonna go, how does life work? How do we handle it? You see, Paul is praying for us to have spiritual maturity. Jesus plainly stated in John 15, five, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do everything. Wrong, nothing. So we are totally dependent on him. And you know, I believe that we often forget this. How? Because we do not pray. It's evident that we try to live our life independently from God and it's a result of that because of our prayerlessness. We do not pray. Zechariah 4, 6 reminds us, not by might nor by power, but my, my spirit, says the Lord. Now notice here again in chapter three, Ephesians three, notice the text again. Whose strength are we to be strengthened by? Look at what he says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through who? His spirit, his strength. That's how we live. That's how we walk in the spirit. It's through him. It's through Christ, his strength. And we're always in need of his strength. You know, not one of us has gotten to the point where we are fully mature in the Lord. The Christian life is not determined when you got saved or how long you've been saved. The Christian life is determined, am I walking in the Spirit now, today? I believe that there are believers in the Lord that know Christ, that have been saved 20, 30, 40 years, but they are not walking in the Lord. You need to repent 
And you need to start walking in Christ. There are believers that have been saved only a couple weeks. And they're not walking in the Lord. What do they need to do? Repent and start walking in the Lord. That's the key. That's what Paul is praying for. Spiritual maturity to be strengthened in the inner man. So am I walking in the spirit? Am I being strengthened today? You see, we never come to the point where we are no longer in need of strength for the inner man. Look at the phrase here. Look what he says. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. It's the same as the word, as the word hearts. Not our physical heart that is pumping blood. But see, when I choose to walk in the Spirit, the inward man, when I choose to walk in the Spirit, I am strengthened in the inner man, the spiritual man, my heart. Paul used the same phrase here in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Why don't you do me a favor? Look to the person next to you. What do you see? What do you see? Decay. Right? You're decaying. You're not getting better. You are falling apart, literally. No wonder why we need knee transplants and arm transplants and brain transplants. We're falling apart. We're decaying. So what do we need, Paul? We need to strengthen the inner man, the spiritual side of me, because this body is going to decay. One of these days, you're going to be laying in a box, and you're going to die. But the spiritual man, the inward man, needs strength. And Paul's praying for spiritual maturity in us. We need strength for that inner man. This is how we fight against sin and temptation in our life is by being strengthened in the inner man. Listen to what Mark chapter 7 verse 21 through 23 says. It says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, Jesus said, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality and theft, and murder, and adultery, and greed, and malice, and deceit, lewdness, and envy, and slander, and arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. How do we deal with sin and temptation? Try to kind of be moral? No. We need strength in the inner man to deal with it. You see, you may be able to change your outward behavior, but if your heart is not changed, you are not changed. You need change. And it only comes by being strengthened in the inner man. Genuine Christianity is not just a moral improvement. God is in the business of changing hearts, changing our desires, changing our motives, that's how we see the, the, the people that lived in Thessalonica there, how they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. There was change in their heart. That only happens because of the power of the Spirit did that. 
And so we need to be resurrected to new life. When we get here to Ephesians chapter number four, which I'm pretty excited about it because Paul is gonna make kind of all of an application now of, of living the Christian life in Ephesians four. But it's new life in Christ being resurrected to new life in which we live. So if we're gonna be mature Christians, am I praying? Am I walking in the spirit? Here's the last thing that Paul makes mention of here. Do I believe it? Do I live by faith? Basically what Paul says. Look what he says. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Do I believe it? You see, the point of Paul's prayer is that the Spirit is strengthening you with power in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ indwells every believer through the Holy Spirit. We read in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if Christ does not live within you, you are not a Christian. So why then in our text does Paul pray that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith? He was writing to Christian believers here. The only conclusion is that Paul is talking about something more than Christ indwelling us at the point of salvation. He is talking about having close fellowship with Christ. And he does this through faith. What is faith? Is it just a really nice fancy word that, you know, your grandma crochets on a pillow somewhere? What is faith? We find in Hebrews chapter 11, 1, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is simply believing. What are we believing? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. Fixing our eyes on what he did for us on the cross. That he endured the cross, despising its shame, Christ suffered for us. And when we have faith, we are believing what God says to be true. You see, biblical faith is always linked with obedience. And so if you trust God, you obey God. To obey God, you must trust that his word is true. So do you believe this word? Do you believe it? I believe there are many Christians that say, I believe the word. But they do not believe it. Why don't they believe it? Because they do not obey it. Because when we obey the word, we're showing that we have faith in God, that we believe what is true, and we connect those two. You see, you will never have more love for God than you do for the word of God. Those two go hand in hand. And so do we believe the word? Do we obey the word? 
Jesus said this in John 14, 23 about how our obedience in his word and how he dwells with us are connected. Listen to what Jesus says. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So do we obey the word? Look at the text again. Look what he says. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Our heart is the inner man, the spiritual part of us. Is there any area in your life which Christ does not have full access to? Parts of your life that are off limits to God. Parts of your life where you say, no, you can't enter in here. Sorry, this room is off limits. This is not for you. You see, Christ wants to live and reign supremely in our lives. He wants to dwell within us completely. Can you imagine living uh, in, in a house where you live? You're married. You own the house. You live there. But then your wife says, honey, um, you can go in any room of this house except this one. I say, well, that's, that's preposterous. What, what, what are you talking about? I own this house. I should have full access to any room in this house. I believe that's how many times we, many times how we treat Christ. We do not give him full access to our lives. We keep things hidden, keep things secret. God wants full access. He wants to dwell within us. This is all part of spiritual maturity. So who are we? We are Christ dwelling. Am I praying? Am I walking in the spirit? And do I 